So I think I probably start every single Lent, the first week of Lent sermon off with this, but repetition is about half of what we're up to here at church, so hopefully that'll be okay. So a little Lent 101 on Lent week one. Lent actually is the 40 days leading up to Easter, a time of self-reflection, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. In the early church, it was a time to study scripture and Jesus' teachings in preparation for baptisms and first communions that would happen at Easter or the vigil Saturday night before Easter. The 40 days of Lent mirrored Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness when he fasted completely despite the temptation to turn stones into bread. So Lent actually in the here and now, is usually marked by giving something up, we say. What are you giving up this year? Giving up social media presence or screen time, giving up a food item or a food group, either in solidarity with those who go without, not by choice, or to have a diet more consistent with care of the earth, or to have a daily reminder when that food is reached for, and then you remember you're not doing that right now and you have a built-in mindfulness alarm. Oh yeah, something I do with little or no thought, I'm now noticing because of its absence. And I do think that part of the logic of Lent does lie in the adage, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Because while absence and giving up are the most well-known tools of Lent, they're not the goal of Lent. Lent actually is about the opportunities created by these newly opened spaces in your heart, your mind, your body, your faith, your life. The church believed, has believed, believes still that transformation can happen when spaces are opened in our lives with a spirit of love and hope and intention of being more connected to God, to neighbor and self. The story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, the story is an interesting case study in giving up. First of all, something that I had never considered the significance of before. The story that directly precedes the temptation narrative that we read today in Matthew 4 is the story of Jesus' baptism, which is at the end of Matthew 3. So literally, the two sentences directly before today's scripture are this, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. I have to think Jesus is able to walk out into the wilderness to choose this 40-day fast because he is bolstered by this baptism and this blessing. You are my beloved child with whom I am so pleased. One of the ways in which I've been so dismayed by much of the modern American church is how uncritically, I like to say they, but let's be honest, it's we, have embraced the so-called protections and defense being offered us when most of us 
are not really in much danger. When it seems to me that Jesus so clearly in the temptation narrative at the beginning of his ministry and in his crucifixion at the end of his ministry was saying that security is not a viable justification for violence. He was tempted to have an army of angels sweep in and rescue him both times, in the wilderness and on the cross, and both times it was a resounding no. A no that a whole religion was built upon. So how can it be that we now have a religion that so readily and regularly accepts violence done in our name, even if we don't do it ourselves, so that our physical safety and that of our wealth can be protected? I'm quick to layer on the judgments, and I layer it on thick when I do, but when the God being taught, the God being encountered, is not the God who says, I know you, you are my child, you are beloved, and I'm so well pleased with you, but rather a father God with favorite children who delights in power over and lives by a different standard than his followers, who requires violent atonement for sin, if this is the God that you were taught and follow, how could you step out into the wilderness? How could you have the capacity to fast, to give up some amount of the things that fill your life in order to, be, to trust being open? It makes sense to me that we give in to the temptation of accepting security when we do not feel known and loved even though it is the original deal with the devil. It's literally in our scripture for today, and it's not an obscure passage in our faith. This deal will not bring the kind of security we long for, and the cost is truly diabolical to the ones who accept the security deal and to those who are sacrificed on its altar. Surprisingly, this perspective actually helps me move from a judgmental posture to a more compassionate one. But it also inspires me to want to keep exercising my giving up muscles, my space-making muscles, to maintain the ability to tolerate open spaces in my life, in my certainty, in my faith, without panicking and signing off on whatever dotted line I need to to feel secure. So this Lent, we've decided to carry the image of a Holloway with us, as you see behind me here. This beautiful photograph behind me is, is a photograph of a Holloway. Um, and as your Lent insert in your bulletin and also in the description of the environment on the back of your bulletin says, a Holloway is a sunken road, worn down by the passing of feet over soft ground for hundreds or thousands of years. These roads have passed from modern use because they're too narrow for vehicles, and many are now so grown over by trees and brambles that they're invisible until you literally accidentally stumble into one in the woods. They are called holloways in England because there are many of them in England, especially in the south of England, where there's a lot of limestone and a lot of soft ground. I learned about them first through the writings of Robert McFarlane, um, whose book um, called Holloway um, I have here, and I believe that there's a copy of it in the windowsill back there um, beside Bonnie Weaver's um, piece of artwork, too, so you're welcome to take a look at it. 
Robert McFarlane was inspired to seek out a Holloway when he read about one in an old book. So he and a friend tried to find that actual Holloway just by based on the description in the book. And sure enough, they find it. Um, they tell the story of that in here. And when they find it, it is almost a falling in because the ro road was carved out well below ground level. They were drawn to find this road that so many had walked ahead of them, even though they didn't exactly know why. When I first heard the word Holloway, I immediately assumed I knew its derivation. Surely it was Holy Way, similar to Halloween, All Hallows Eve. But the derivation is actually probably from Harrow, which in addition to meaning distressing, is also an agricultural implement for breaking up land for plowing. I really wanted it to mean holy way. Here's the thing though, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, and I do think that there's a rich invitation for us here. For me, the Holloway visualizes so much of what draws me to the kinds of spiritual practices that we explore in Lent every year as a church. And I don't just mean us, I mean the thousands of years of the church. A desire to walk in the steps of those who came before us, maybe even especially on our harrowed paths. When I was growing up, every Christian that I knew was expected to have one of these spiritual practices, and we called them devotions. Did you do your daily devotions was something we talked about in youth group, which were usually reading the Bible, in my case, highlighting it with lots of different highlighter colors, or reading a specific devotional book with daily readings about scripture, um, maybe journaling. But as I got older, I no longer felt comfortable with those devotionals. They didn't use vocabulary that resonated with me as I aged. And also, in my 20s anyway, I felt it was too inwardly focused. I felt like ethics was all that mattered. Actions, not words. But at a certain point, um, I found myself reflecting that all those years of devotional practices seemed in retrospect like seasons of real richness, where I was building layers of fossil fuels, and part of why I could concentrate, as I thought, on ethics alone was because I had so much fuel to burn. Although I had not felt particularly confident in those practices, those prayers, those intentions were very sincere, and I truly believe that they helped sustain me long after I had stopped regularly practicing them. Um, I have found different practices now, practices that deeply inspire me and sustain me, contemplative art and collage, songwriting I've talked about here, the study of sacred and ordinary texts, and the sermon writing vigil, I call it. Praying for all of you, praying for the world, practicing the examen. I have to make myself a Google reminder for that one. And regularly prioritized conversations with trusted friends. These are the places where I've found the ground is softest in me, where my repeated footsteps are beginning to carve a path these are the practices that I bushwhack through the obstacles of my day, 
of its obligations to get to, like these hallways. And when I'm there, I can feel the presence alongside me of all who have gone before me in those practices. These are the ways that I practice my devotion to God, who is love, who is mystery, the source of all life and creativity. Devotion, after all, just means love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person or an activity or a cause. Devotional, which um, made me stumble for so many years, simply means of or used in religious worship. But the root of it is devotion, is love. And I use the examples of the practices that I practice, not because I'm particularly good at practicing or they're particularly noble practices, but in hopes that my putting some of myself out here will help you feel safe to do so as well. Because I think that there is a feast that many of us are missing in our faith because of the struggles we have with words like devotional. <clears throat> but I believe that the finding and repeating of a practice can be life-giving and faith-sustaining, can help us explore where our soft ground may be if we're not sure, or can bring us into the company of friends that we may never even meet because they walked the same harrowed, hallowed path generations before us. Because that's what Lent actually is about, finding our way through the wilderness back to the way, the one to whom we are devoted. So I encourage you to share with one another this Lent. It could be in sharing time or over potluck, on Parrot Nation or in your Christian ed classes or small groups, but it doesn't have to be here. But to share with one another, what are the practices that you might be interested in trying? What are you longing to devote more of your time and life to? What are the practices that do sustain you, that sustain the ethics and values you believe in, the practices through which you meet God and walk beside others on this path, the practices that allow you to speak your love to life, that allow your deepest hungers to be stilled in the words of the last hymn we sang that Joe led us in just